Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. Denver so far. And why Denver? Why not uh, Portland or something? Well, um... So my wife and I were living in LA and um, I just finished the, that first draft of the book. And, uh, you know, we were kind of like both into LA and like, I'm sorry, into the acting and I was doing acting and stand up. We were both in production there. And then, you did stand up comedy. Yeah. I did stand up for like over 10 years, bro. You're so diverse. Holy shit. Whoa. <laughs> how can, yeah. how can like this neuroscience guy who wrote a book on consciousness be a stand up comedian? Well, um, so I was doing the acting and stand up life. And then in 2013, I had a near death experience and it was like, uh, it cracked me open and showed me, you know, where I was headed and who who I really was and uh, what I was up to. And, and then it kind of, you know, I was able to see ahead, you know, it was like, I was, I was seeing a preview of where my life was going and it didn't look good. And, uh, so, you know, I was in the space that many people would describe as nirvana or heaven or the possibility space, as I like to call it. And in that space, it was like, you know, ultimate possibility. Okay. You could be this actor, stand up comic that is a lying, cheating tyrant on his way to just self-destruction and probably killing himself. And, or you could do something else. You could live, you could come back and live with integrity. And I chose to come back. Oh my God. Okay. So could you please dive into this near-death experience? Um, if you don't mind, tell me like what caused you to get so close to death and what was your mental state like as you went through that? Sure. So um, this was 2013 um, and uh, there was a, a friend of mine named Callie. And uh, so she came out to visit me in Los Angeles and we wanted to, um, I had just started production on this pilot and um you know, I was very happy because we had just finished like the first awesome day and it was just amazing. And uh, anyway, uh, we decided to go a little bit crazy and uh, take some acid. Um, nice. So I had gotten uh, some acid, but she and I, we had been sold acid two times before this and it wasn't actually acid. It was DOB or DOI. So two other research chemicals that um, you could actually overdose on. And um, oh yeah, so... So with this one, um, we get, you know, a 10 strip of these tabs that were sold to us as acid. And uh, we go to this music venue in downtown Los Angeles. So, um, you know, we go to see this DJ named Artie. And uh, the second we get there, because I had taken acid, legitimate acid a couple times before, I was like, oh, I can take at least three of this guy, this, this, these tabs, right? So, but I've never taken these ones before. So, uh, and if you don't know what they are, you just got to be very, very careful because, acid is actually LSD at is actually hard to overdose on, but something like 25 I N bomb or DOB or DOI or some of these other research chemicals that people sell instead of selling you LSD, um, they, you can overdose on them. So long story short, uh, we get into the club. I take three tabs immediately. She takes two about, you know, an hour later, we're both like, I don't really feel this. So we both take another one. Um, then about 30, 45 minutes later, we're like, both didn't really feel it. So we both split another one. Um, and then, so we decide to, you know, because the DJ is actually starting to get huge. So we're starting to get this Alice in Wonderland syndrome thing. You heard of that before? No. 
So just like in the movie Alice in Wonderland, where she gets like five times bigger or five times smaller, um, your visual distortions can start to happen like that with your body. So you can look at something and it can look like, you know, this, this coffee cup can look like, like, I don't know, very, very small or can look huge. So uh, this is called Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Um, and, uh, so it was starting to get a little bit like that. And so we're like, okay, we should leave this music venue. So we hop in a taxi and decide to go back to my place in Koreatown. Right. This is a crazy story, but it's, it's fun. (laughs) So anyway, so we get into, um, we pull up next to my place and we're trying in the 10 minute taxi cab ride home. I forgot everything. And I I know what you're thinking. You're like, no, not everything. Right. Yes everything. She and I had no idea how to pay this taxi cab driver at the end because the LSD was like so present in our minds. Like, you know, at a certain point you, it offlines your ability to connect new information to past information. So the way that our consciousness is even able to work is because we're always comparing what we're seeing against what we've all, what we've seen before, you know, and most of what we see is memory in the first place. So, um, so I, I didn't quite understand how, how much it could change your visual experience and how much it could, you know, destroy your ability to remember things. Um, so we're trying to pay the taxi cab driver. The credit card machine doesn't work. So he takes us to an ATM across the street. Um, we're standing in front of this ATM and it looks like it's a machine embedded in a wall. And I've never seen anything like this before. You know, it's, it, there's so much beauty in the red bricks next to this, this, this ATM <laughs> machine. I'm like enamored with the wall, but at the same time, I know I'm supposed to get some kind of money out of this thing. And I, I like, I have no concept of what it is. So I just turn to the taxi cab driver and I'm like, look, uh, you're going to have to help us. Cause I have no idea what the hell this thing is. And the guy looks, looks in my eyes, sees how big my pupils are and goes, holy shit. <laughs> he says that into my face, right? And then um and then he's like, "Okay." And then he's like, "Man, I wish I was wherever you are right now." And he like helps us type in whatever four digits come to my mind and uh we get some money out of the machine. Whatever bill comes out, I just hand it to the guy and I'm, I point at my apartment. I'm like, "Take us home." Like that's the only thing I cared about was like getting home cuz it was getting extreme. Like four and a half tabs of LSD was way too much. So anyway, uh, we get inside the apartment and, um, you know, I had taken five methoxy dimethyltryptamine about a week prior. You ever had that before? No, 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 no. Okay. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's kind of like ayahuasca in a sense, but, um, Whoa. it's something you can smoke. And I felt like I was on the edge of death a, a week ago. And, uh, so anyway, LSD at this dosage, it was getting so strong that, I couldn't even tell like that we had taken something. And I know you might be thinking like, it's like, how could you forget that you took a molecule? You know, how could you forget? Yeah. But at a certain dosage, you can, you can not be able to extract yourself from the present moment. So you can't think about a future where you're not, you know, intoxicated and you can't think about a past where you took something you like in the same way that every single night of your entire life, you've been like, okay, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to have a dream tonight. But then you forget. And then you you're in the dream and you're just like, it's all weird, but you have no idea why. Yeah. Something like that. So you're just stuck in this spot where things are so strange and you have no reference point and you think it's always going to be like this. It's always going to be like this. And, um, you know, at a certain dosage, you can lose yourself so strongly that like, uh, you have no sense of self anymore. I had no concept that I had a name or parents. 
uh, a future or a past. You know, I was just completely sunk in the moment of being in this apartment complex. And um, so she and I, like, there were waves where it would come in and I would be lucid and I would, you know, then be stuck in these time dilated thought loops. But we were trying to get my roommate to come out and come explain to us what the hell was happening because it felt like I was on DMT at this moment in time. Um, <laughs> so this is where it starts to get a little bit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, Brian, my roommate goes back in his room. He starts to go to sleep. Cause it's like three 30 in the morning right now. Um, Callie, for some reason, you know, I'm starting to get the idea that, uh, I'm going to die. Okay. So, um, I get the idea that we weren't sold acid, but we got sold 25 I in bomb. And is this, is this normal on LSD? Like, cause I know a lot of people smoke a lot of weed and think they're going to die. Like it's kind of normal. Is that a normal response when doing LSD? Yeah. So I'll layer it with a little neuroscience. Um, your sense of self, uh, right now is underpinned by a large scale network firing in your brain called the default mode network. So this network is, is firing right now because you have a sense of self and you are able to chop up, you know, this moment into, past, present, future. So you're able to chop up time at this moment in time. But if this network gets offline through meditation or flow states or psychedelics, then it starts to disintegrate. So it's, it doesn't fire in its normal way. And so it normally polices the amount of sensory information you take in so that it's normal and not chaotic. But um, under a psychedelic state, you can have experiences where like, I kind of liken it to this. Every single second, you have 11 million bits of information streaming into your to your body through all of your all five of your sense organs. So 11 yeah. million bits, but your yeah. conscious self can only attend to about 200 bits out of that 11 million. So you got to imagine this bottleneck. So you got 11 million bits funneling up, and then your unconscious mind is sorting and channeling all this information and being like, "This is relevant. This is re- this is irre- irre- irrelevant. Don't need to don't need to worry about this. Don't need to focus on this. Focus on this." So it's giving you a 200 bit size story every single second that is your conscious experience. Yeah. Yeah. So now that's what it is normally, but you take a psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD. And what starts to happen is um, these uh, ratios of sensory awareness starts to shift and change in ways that's like, you know, maybe it's a hundred bits for seeing instead of 50, or maybe it's 150 for seeing instead of 50. So like, you have way more power and energy devoted to brain states than normal. So your brain is also hyper-connected and talking to itself. So different parts of your brain are talking to itself that have not talked to each other since probably since infancy. Is that all uh, it is? Is that, is that all the psychedelics is? Because we always hear people say, Oh, I've never done psychedelics. Unfortunately, I, I, I would like to try, but is that all it is, is that, Hey, you're essentially, they say your mind's eye opens or whatever, but essentially your bits just widen. Is that the only thing or is there some other legitimate things that like maybe screw with your vision or hearing? Oh, it's yeah. There's many, many, many things that go on. So like, so both. Yeah. So both. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so the book like walks you through just, you know, not everything, but some of the things that are happening while this experience is going on and this, this story that I'm telling you, this Koreatown experience of near of this near death experience, um, this gets treated pretty well in the book, <laughs> yeah, you know, because nice. it's like a monolithic story. With I mean, it was the first time. I mean, I'll cut towards a little tease towards the end. Um, I was able to see the layers of consciousness that 
that stack up to make our conscious experience all normal and neat and nice the way it is right now, I was able to see them uh, tick off and tick back on in the same way that you might uh, play with Photoshop or something that you can turn off layers or editing, yeah. you know, how you can turn on tracks and turn off tracks. Yeah, so yeah. it's just kind of like that. Um, and so with uh, psychedelics, for example, you have, um, so one thing that they do is, is they, they make your brain more hyper-connected. So you have two hemispheres in your brain. And so they, they are connected, but they're not always talking to each other in the same, they're not talking to each other in the way that they are under LSD. And so if you're wondering why, like you've had cannabis or something, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So music sounds amazing when you're on cannabis, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Taste sounds a little bit, I mean, sorry, taste uh, is a little bit better. Yeah. So one of the reasons why music sounds better while you're intoxicated on cannabis, for example, is because you have more brain real estate engaged in processing the sound coming in. Wow. Yeah. So if you, if we can just, you know, speculate here, let's say you're given something like 45 bits to perceive, um, audio, like that's like your kind of like ratio that's, um, normal, so to speak for just when, you know, you got headphones on and you're jamming out to whoever you listen to and you're like, okay, so it's like 45 bits. Well, imagine if I could turn that up to like 180 or 150 or something like that. So you have more conscious awareness being, uh, devoted to dissecting the song. And so, you yeah. know, um, it sounds better and, you know, it messes with your sense of time. Cannabis messes with your sense of time, just like psychedelics do. So instead of being kind of like a little bit ahead of the song, you're completely sunk in the moment of now and you're listening to it with more attention. And so have you ever had a flow state or where you got in a car wreck? Uh, I guess flow state uh, associated with work, but never a car wreck or something traumatic like that. Okay. But like, I'm assuming coding maybe. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You kind of lose track of time. You don't know what's going on. You look up and it's been eight hours, but it feels like eight minutes. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, the default mode network during that moment in time, when you were in a flow state, uh, it was winking out of existence. So, um, you have, there's only so much energy that your brain can like process it at one moment in time. And like, and so when the going gets tough and you're, let's say like for me, I'm snowboarding down a hill or something like that. And I'm so maxed out. I'm so challenged by what's happening. Like these moguls mm. that, um, I can't think about tomorrow and I can't think about, you know, uh, that I burned last night's dinner or whatever, <laughs> you know, I can't think about these things cause I have to attend to every single, um, you know, contour of the Valley as I'm like, you know, going down it like 30 or 40 miles an hour or whatever. So like, there's not enough uh, attentional capacity to extract yourself in the present moment in that moment. So time starts to slow down. So in the brain, this is called transient hypofrontality. So your prefrontal cortex is, um, temporarily, uh, not firing in its usual way. And so what this tells us is that, um, your sense of self, this inner critic, this narrator that's going on and telling you your moment by moment experience, it's a luxury. It doesn't have to be there. You know, like mm-hmm. we don't need it. And our sense of time is something that's calculated all of the prefrontal cortex and all of the brain as well, but specifically a lot in the prefrontal cortex. So when this transient hyperventality thing starts to happen during psychedelics or flow states, then you're just no longer able to process the moment in the same way. And it feels effortless because, you know, it's like your conscious self sits in the backseat 
while your unconscious mind takes over and it's just like, boom, and you're going or you're coding and uh, you lose your sense of self. And it's, I mean, people report being most happy when they're in flow. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That, that's yeah. a good one. And the snowboarding one is good too. So let's get back to drugs. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so let's just take weed, marijuana, whatever, for example, um, a super well-known side effect of it is that everything tastes incredible. And what you're saying is that that's because these drugs, weed in this case kind of opens up the bits used to have 20 bits to taste. Now it's 40 bits. Is that it or is there other like taste enhancing chemicals that are going into these drugs, for example? Um, so I'm not 100% well versed on marijuana too much, but I can say that um, there are the one thing that cannabis does do is it it activates certain parts of the brain that are more engaged in taste and uh, reward and like mm. food seeking and that sort of thing. So there's more pleasure being dumped out during that. But um, I mean, I'm not sure if you knew this, but like uh, you've had runner's high before yeah. that, that right. feeling of runner's high. Yeah, so yeah. runner's high is underpinned by a neurotransmitter being dumped in your brain called anandamide. So you run for about 15 minutes or so and you start to get a runner's high. So that's anandamide. Now anandamide is our endogenous cannabinoid chemical. So wow. we, yeah, uh, we actually call it the endocannabinoid system because, um, we had, we had discovered cannabis first. And so the only reason cannabis is able to affect you is because you have anandamide receptors inside your brain and the cannabis molecule looks like almost identical to, to, to anandamide. So, um, you know, you smoke cannabis, it passes the blood brain barrier, goes in and it fits into the anandamide receptor site just like a key fits into a lock and it stimulates the anandamide receptor site in the same way. So anandamide is kind of like a pain, um, dampening. I, I'm having trouble speaking, but, uh, it's like, um, it's part of the pain system. So yeah. modulating pain in a way that, um, like a pain reliever. So, you know, in the same way that it gives you runner's high, um, and you feel good while you're running because you need to keep running maybe to hunt down this animal or something like that. Um, that's the same idea, but with cannabis. So it's this artificial, um, not artificial cause it's natural, but it's this artificial way of stimulating the endocannabinoid system. That's some crazy shit, man. <laughs> right. That's so crazy because it's like, you would think, you know, we developed this runner's high mechanism and like, this is healthy and it's like, but smoking weed, you think about the opposite of that is I'm just sitting now smoking a stogie. I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here. Mm -hmm. is for example they say eagles have like a thousand times better vision than us mm -hmm. and let's just say hypothetically whenever you do lsd your vision becomes a, a thousand times better like the the bits go times a thousand does that mean that like eagles see like like eagles and us get on the same wavelength whenever we take LSD, like, do they see that LSD vision all the time? Do same thing with like taste dogs taste better than us. So whenever I eat a Snickers and I'm stoned, I'm like, Oh, this is the best thing ever. Does it taste like that every time to the dog? <laughs> well, it's important to know that, um, not all animals perceive the same world that you do. Um, Whoa. so it's called, uh, there's a, great term for this called umwelt um it's a german term but it's it's basically meaning like each 
organism has its own perceptual world that it lives in. And some organisms may even share the same environment, but inhabit a different perceptual world because they have different types of sensory organs. So for example, bats, um, you know, they don't see very well with their eyes, but they can emit a high pitch frequency of sound that we can't even hear, right? Yeah. We can hear some of what they pitch out, but we cannot hear the frequency because it, our ears just can't detect it, but their ears can. And they're synesthetic in the sense that, you know, the sound goes out, it hits a wall, comes back, and then they're able to see in total darkness. So they're yeah. able to see. So how are they able to see? Well, they have an internal model of, you know, their brain has an internal model of the environment. And so it's mapping what, what they're, what they're able to see based on different input, instead of it being photons coming into their eyes, it's sound. So it's it's the same kind of there. The argument goes, and this would come from Richard Dawkins that, you know, bats and dogs might even be able to see or smell and color because color is a useful uh, label that the brain uses to, um, interpret the world, you know, yeah. to tag certain things as, you know, and he talks about this in one of his Ted talks, you know, it, it might be that bats see in color because it's useful to know the acoustics of, I mean, sorry, the acoustic environment that they're, you know, screeching in these caves, you know, maybe this, um, maybe this is uh, softer over here or it's fuzzy over here, you know, like it's just got different contours and shapes and so it might be colored on the inside because color is just something our brain produces you know there isn't color Mm. out in the real world it's something that our brain is making up in a sense Um, we perceive different wavelengths of light but we as humans only perceive three different wavelengths so short medium and long which is basically rgb so red green blue Um, and from that we're able to generate so from three types of cones inside our retinas, we're able to generate an entire world of color, but we only have three cones. Birds have four. There is a shrimp that has 16 cones that, I mean, what do they see? I have no idea. We have no clue what they see, but the fact that they have 16 cone receptors and we only have three, like we can't see UV, but um, birds can, birds can see UV. And so they can see UV. Yeah. They can see ultraviolet. Yeah. So, I mean, things look different to them. Um, Bees see ultraviolet. So when they look at a flower, um, the flower has certain patterns that we can't even detect. But to a bee, it's it's like this landing pattern. It's like, come, come here, come take, (laughs) come take this pollen, spread this seed. (laughs) You know, that's what these flowers are saying to these uh, bees. So holy shit. All right. Let's go back. So I know we got on a tangent there and and I could go all night. But all right. So you are in your apartment. You're stoned as fuck. You don't know what's going on and what what happens next while you're you're in your apartment. Yeah. Uh, can I add a little bit to a vision of what we see real quick? Yeah, dude. Let's talk about it. Okay. So if you hold out your um, hand in front of you right now and you look at your thumb and you look yeah. at your thumbnail, that is representative of 1% of your visual field. Now you see well oh, with 1% of your eye. Only 1%. So... You got to imagine what vision is really like because, um, and this will tie back into LSD because under the LSD state, sometimes people see primary visual processing instead of what we see right now, which is processed. You know, it's already been processed by the brain, but if you could see raw vision for a second, you would barely notice. I mean, you would barely recognize it because it is so foreign to what you think you're seeing right now. Um, 
So this is, this is how crazy it is. So you only see well with 1% of your visual field. You have a phobia in the back of your retina. And so that's where the cone receptors are the most dense. So they take in the most light and can see the most color, et cetera. So yeah. that's what you read with that tiny little bit. You know, as you scan a page, you're like, you know, your phobia is going this word, this word, this word, this word, this word. And it's like tracking. But the rest of your vision, the the remaining 99% is like peering through frosted glass would be David Eagleman's line. So yeah. it's low res peripheral vision. It's not good. So you got to imagine what your brain is doing. It's taking these tiny little, tiny little fovea snapshots and sending it back into the brain, into the visual cortex, where it then stitches these two-dimensional images. So you've got a two-dimensional image coming from your right eye, a two-dimensional image coming from your left eye, and most of it's shit, but a tiny 1% is good. And then it uses half of your visual cortex, processes that foveal data, and then makes it up. It makes mm. you are the psychologist. Um, Carl Jung talks about how we're dreaming all the time. And that's what he means by that. It's like, we're basically dreaming all the time because we have this tiny bit of sensory data dribbling in. And then we're able to, you know, fill in the blanks of what we think is there based on expectation. And there's visual illusions in the book that show you how, how, how poor your vision is. And, and, and they wouldn't work at all if, if your vision was as good as you think it is, but it isn't. <laughs> Could you explain this 1% thing? It, I, I don't think I quite understand. Are you saying that all the data we could take in is 1% of our image or what, what does that mean? So basically, all right. So you have um, the retinas in your back, your back of your eye. So they have cones and rods. So the cones mm -hmm. are what help you see color. Now the cone expression, there's the most dense cone expression is, a, is in an area called the phobia. So it's just 1% of your retina. So that's oh, what okay. you see well with. So okay. you, it's like, it isn't that, you know, a lot of people would think maybe, or f I guess think that like our vision's like continuous video and that these are just windows and you just have, you know, reality streaming in. But yeah. what really is happening is you're not, you have an, you have a, a very blurry eye except for one tiny little bit. And from that one little bit, you're able to, you move it around six, I think 180 times a minute. You move your fovea around 180 times a minute. And from that, you're able to construct a, an internal model of what you think the environment looks like. But if you've ever, I don't know, someone at, like got a new haircut and you didn't notice. Yeah. I'm sure that's happened before. Of course. Well, we don't see as well as we think we do. And so it's like... For that entire time that they're talking to you for 45 minutes and then you're like, oh my God, you got a haircut. It's like, yeah. you were, you were kind of, you were looking at them, but you weren't really looking at them. You know what I mean? You were yeah. looking at your memory of them. And so, you know, mem I'm sorry, vision is something that takes years to master. And, you know, one thing we talk about in the book is like, they, there's these kids that are born with uh, congenital cataracts. So cataracts in their eyes in India. And because, you know, they're in poor conditions, they're not able to get um, healthcare and get these cataracts cut off. And mm. so, you know, conventional wisdom would say, well, as soon as you cut the cataracts off when they're like eight or nine years old, they'll be able to see just fine. Right. Yeah. You'd yeah. think, but that isn't sadly, that isn't the case because vision is something that takes years to master. So they cut them, they cut these cataracts off and these kids, it takes them 18 months or something like that to learn how to see the world and to understand like what things are, it takes them 
like, uh, I think about four weeks to be able to recognize a face, you know, oh. something as simple as facial recognition that you do effortlessly. It, it takes time to figure out how to do that for a brain that's never learned how to see before. And sadly, if the brain is deprived of this ability to see, you know, like even just a few months of your life, the first few months of your life, there will always be, you know, impairments to the visual system that no amount of training can correct. Um, so it is, it is imperative that, you know, you see immediately when you're, when you're born <laughs> and you don't see well, but you learn how to construct this internal model I'm talking about. And so what this LSD experience for did for me was showed me just how much of our visual experience is made up and how much of our just reality is made up by our own brain. And we have this mm. narrative that we're spinning to ourselves about, you know, oh no, this is reality. But I mean, you're, you live on a different planet than me right now. Like pretty much you could yeah. be living on a different planet. Like it's, yeah. it's pretty wild. So, so, anyway. <laughs> so, so essentially to summarize what you're saying is 1% of our eyeball real estate does all of this vision and it's just 1% and it's fucking crazy. What do you think these kids in Africa who got the cataracts removed, you're saying they can't see well, I'm sure. Hmm. I'm sure if you took a snapshot from their eyeball and a snapshot from my eyeball, we would see the same picture, but are you saying maybe they just didn't know how to perceive things? Exactly. So, you know, uh, there's one illusion in the book, which is like a square and then there's a, a circle overlapping the square. Um, yeah. a, there's a square and there's a circle overlapping the square. And so that's a simple you know, if I showed that to you, you'd be like, what's well, a square overlapping a circle? <laughs> Why are you showing of course. Yeah. Now, if you showed it to one of them, they would say, they would think there's three objects there. Now, if I was to ask you how many objects there, you'd say oh. two, obviously. But for a brain that's never seen before, they haven't figured out to parse how to parse the world to, you know, this is Dr. Paul and Sinha's line. It's um, to the newly sighted, the world appears over fragmented. So everything looks like its own object. You know, mm. they don't know what edges and lines are supposed to be there yet. They, you know, because your brain has been doing, you know, R and D on how to see ever since you took your first breath and cried, like, you know, how to parse the world. And you're like, that's an edge. That's a shadow. That's a light. That's the sun. Like, but to a brain that's never seen anything before, it's, it's one supremely complex visual field filled with colors and shapes. And they don't know what's what yet, you know, it's mm. going to take time for them to figure out what a face is. I think it's like four weeks. Um, it takes them time to, I think it's like three or four weeks to figure out that it's not three objects there, but it's two objects. It's a square overlapping a circle. So, I mean, it just goes to show you like, and it, like how, 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 how we, we think as humans, we're like, oh, our vision's so great. And it isn't even that great. Um, yeah. And I'll say one more thing about the vision and then we'll move on. Um, no, I can stay here all is, night. I can talk about this all day, dude. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so this is Dr. David, David, David Eagleman's line. Uh, so most of vision is an internal process having happening completely inside our heads. And only about 5% of that is coming in from the retinas. The remaining 95% mm. is internal generated imagery. I've heard that. You have? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it just goes to show you like, you know, that's we're dreaming, we're hallucinating all the time, except, you know, when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. That's a Neil Seth's line. 
Um, oh yeah, that, that's really good. You know what's a funky one that I think everybody can relate to is peripheral vision. And I probably said that wrong, but it's weird because you'll be driving and you're really only focused on like this bit, right? Just the road. Yeah. But something will flash to your left and you don't notice anything there. But if something flashes or something, then you'll, oh, it's like, it's like you're, it's there, but you really don't care until you have to care. It's crazy how like your brain will switch your attention like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, but while it's in your, um, the side of your vision, you know, the peripheral vision is really good at detecting motion, but it, it's, it's not high res in the same way that your fovea yeah. is high res. So in order to detect what it actually is, you have to look, you have to turn your eyes. Yeah, and exactly. so, um, but until you've, you know, put your fovea on what it actually is, you know, your brain's like, well, it could be a bird. It could be a plane. It could be Superman. You know, like, yeah, I yeah. don't know what it is, but, um, and then you look over and you're like, oh, it's just another car. But, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. And it's also crazy that whenever we look, it's like, hey, can you see your nose? And you're like, yeah, I can see it. But you don't see it until I just told you, can you see your nose? It's so weird. And like our eyes are kind of back. You would think that like, yeah, the nose is it's right here, dude. It should block you. But it's kind of like our brain stitches together like, hey, we know that nose thing. It's always there. It's cool. It's not going to bite us. So like the brain like kind of stitches together this image, bro, you, you're freaking me out. <laughs> it, Dude, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, you, it screens out your nose. If you wear glasses, it screens out the glasses. If it you have a crack in your windshield, it'll screen that out too. You that's won't even notice point. it. You'll be driving for months and you're like, people are like, how do you drive like that? And you're like, oh yeah, it's cracked. <laughs> but until they say it, you're like, yeah. oh, my brain just screened it out. It photoshopped it out. It airbrushed that shit out of my, my vision. And so- Here's something to think about. If it does this with your nose and your windshield oh, no, don't and all do that it. stuff. <laughs> don't do it. What do you think it does to your own body? Your own, oh! body <laughs> your own face or your lover's face, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. we airbrush, we airbrush reality. We have a small, you know, thumbnail size version of who we think we are. We call that the ego. And, yeah. uh, but who we really are is a much more dynamic, dark but like rich personality and we scrub out so many unlikable traits and behaviors from our field of vision and we're like oh no i don't need to think about that i need to look at that i need to talk about that yeah if you're a narcissist uh which a lot of people are i think i probably am too i think most men are i mean let's just face it we're not great people if compared to our women counterparts in my opinion yeah but yeah that's such a good point we the filtering process you can think about an instagram filter it's like oh i'm ugly take a picture oh i'm pretty on instagram wow it's like we do this to ourselves and i think some people can do it i know a lot of people do it as in positive like yeah you know i'm a lot better looking than they say these girls don't know what they're missing out on but i think a lot of people can beat the hell out of themselves too an interesting experiment this wasn't an experiment this was an ad but uh (laughs) Okay. I think I think it was by Dove or something like that, or L'Oreal is like a women's beauty company. You know okay. what I'm gonna say? Yeah, I and, think so. Tell it. And so they had um, they had women sit down. I think it was mostly women. I think, and uh, they had an artist draw them. The artist was blindfolded, or the artist was in a separate room, and the women had to describe themselves, and the artist would 
draw them blind. So the women may say, I have hair down to my shoulders. It's dark brown. It's curled at the end. I have bangs. I have a nose, but it has a big lump and I have big cheeks and like, um, you know, skinny lips or whatever. And the artist would draw this person and boom, put that piece of paper down. Uh, and then later, a stranger would look at the exact same person and describe the person to the artist. So the artist would do two drawings of a single person. One where the description came from the person, one where the description came from a stranger. And every single time, the picture that was described by a stranger was way more beautiful, way more beautiful than... Really? Yeah. And it was because... Um, I, I, I think it was women and women are, we're hard on women's looks. It, and so like women would say, yeah, I got fat cheeks and, you know, I kind of got a double chin and, you know, I got acne. So make sure you draw that. And I got this big old nose, but whenever we look at people, like I look at you and I don't see any of that stuff. You know, I see good looking people. I'm like, wow, she's beautiful. She has beautiful complexion and stuff like that. It's just like this perception is so different than reality and our brain yeah. tricks us all the time all the time dude that's i'm gonna i thought you were gonna say a different they did another ad that was cool but i thought you were gonna do that one but that's a really cool one i'm gonna look into that one that's that's a yeah. cool experiment just in yeah i mean i think what you were saying earlier is like some people think of themselves as like you know oh i'm the best i'm the greatest you yeah, know yeah, kind of yeah. like narcissistic types and then there's the opposite spectrum, which is like body dysmorphia, where they're going to get under the knife because they think they look so bad when they're like beautiful yeah. and they have to like put on all this makeup when they're beautiful. And they're like, why are you doing this? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm ugly. And you're like, people oh, in L.A., be honest, people in L.A., I used to live in San Diego, man. Every <laughs> Everybody is beautiful. The men are beautiful. The women, even the dogs are beautiful. But you talk to them and like, yeah, I'm trying to get my lips done. You think I need it? I'm like, What? What? Like you're literally a supermodel, but they're all, bro, they're so superficial. And, and it, mm-hmm. it goes back to the point of the perception is different than reality. Exactly. Cause they're, they're focusing on one little flaw on their yeah. body and they can't get rid of it. You know, I mean, I have one myself and it's, it's just human nature, man. Like, but, and, and I've, I've talked to people about it and they're like, I never noticed that before. You know, I got the scar in my eye yeah, right here. I was playing racquetball. Someone cracked me in the face with a, a racket, busted it open. I had to get so many stitches. And anyway, like it just like, oh, it hurt so bad. And like, and so I, I, I worry about it, you know, like I get the scar in my face and like, you know, but nobody, nobody cares. Nobody Dude, cares I, me. I, I did not see that at all until you point out. I, I can't see that at all, man. I mean, see at all, at all. But that like, was... I'll see a photo of myself and I'm like, fuck that scar. all right everybody i don't see why everybody is freaking obsessed with their noses oh my gosh everybody there's like one legitimately legitimately because i i I look at people i observe people and and i judge them right i'm american and i'm not perfect i judge them um yeah so i look at people and i never notice a person's nose ever like one out of maybe 500 i may say whoa you know, they got a big old nose or something like that. <laughs> but it seems like everybody you talk to, these people with these great noses, like, I got to get my nose. I got to get my nose done. Oh, my nose. I got to do my makeup. So much. Like, what are you? T- Wait, what? This is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, man. So, okay. Okay. 
we've got to get back to the near death experience because this this has fascinated me um, for years. So you're super stoned on LSD Mm -hmm. in your apartment. What what happens next? All right. So um, Brian went back to sleep. It's just Callie and I and we're we're pretty gone. Um, and, uh, anyway, I start to feel that I'm going to die. And so, uh, we were talking about the default mode network that underpins your sense of self. So it starts to disintegrate under LSD or psilocybin. This, these are, you know, known things in the research community. Um, and so people tend to have this ego death or ego dissolution experience where they think they're dying. And so that's exactly what happened to me. I get it in my head that I have taken 25 N bomb and I'm going to die because you wow. can overdose on that. And because I wasn't sure, I wasn't a hundred percent sure about where I got my tabs. I was a hundred percent convinced that I was going to die. So I look, I look, I'm sorry, Brian was still in the room at this time. I looked at Brian and he looks at me like, dude, you're about to die right now. You took way too much of that substance. And oh, this is how shit. it ends for you. Remember? And then I look at Callie, like she's going to have some way out of this. And she's like, dude, you took way too much in bomb. Like you're fucked. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, basically, you know, this is where it gets a little bit weird. It felt like death's hand was on my shoulder saying, this is how you die right now. And it was so sinister and so real. Like usually when I tell the story, I get hair, like, and this is probably going to happen too. My hair on my neck and my arms will start to stand up because it scared the shit out of me. It always scares me because it was so real. And so I think I'm about to die. And I say, no, 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 no. I am begging and pleading. I'm creating God so that I will not have to die because I was an atheist at this moment in time. And while I'm spinning out of control, thinking I'm about to die, Callie decides to grab the chair where I usually sit and eat breakfast and um, it's got a red plastic seat, steel chair. She decides to pick it up and lean back on one leg. And then she throws it through our second floor window, (laughs) busts out through the window. And (laughs) so it crashes on the ground. Brian, Brian's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Quote. And uh, (laughs) she grabs the glasses off his face, throws them against the wall and says, just accept it. And now I'm like really spinning out of control. What? You know, like, that's chaos i'm dying you know brian's pissed like he's like just like livid like what the fuck is happening i just met him like two months ago (laughs) was he sober he was sober oh Oh, yeah he had to work in like hours from now um i i sound like a really bad roommate (laughs) (laughs) but we were celebrating man and anyway so um i'm spiraling i think i'm about to die i know i'm about to die uh there's glass on the floor you know she picked up my MDMA and threw that everywhere. So there's fucking ecstasy all over the place. Um, and, uh, anyway, so like, I'm, I I feel like I'm about to die. It's about to happen. And like, it feels like the biggest sneeze of all time. And like, I knew that it was, I was, you know, if you overdose on 25 at N-bomb, you're going to have like, you know, elevated pulse delirium, um, you know, your heart failure, uh, multiple organ failure, like all these things are going to happen. And so like my heart's racing, I think this is the moment that it's about to happen. And then, you know, my life starts to flash before my eyes and it's like a boomerang, you know, okay. what a, you know what a boomerang is right? yeah, yeah, from yeah. Instagram. So it's like that it goes like, whoosh, like birth whoosh, to this moment, birth whoosh, to this moment, back and forth, back and forth. And it keeps getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And instead of it showing 
like like a, it was like a series of jump cuts. And instead of it like being from my normal perspective where there's narration and I'm excusing away all the actions that I've done, all the horrible things that I've put someone through, like lying and cheating and, you know, just being a tyrant and taking things that I wanted, you know, not thinking of myself as a, as a thief or anything like that. But like, you know, sometimes I, I, I would, sometimes I would take things, you know what I mean? Like, and sure. it's, it's these unlikable traits and behaviors that you just scrub from existence. But at this moment in time, it was bam, this is your life. You are going to die right here on the floor of the shitty Koreatown apartment. And there's nothing you can do about it. Oh and so God. I finally, you know, I, I realized that I'm a monster. I'm disgusted by myself. I hate myself. And what can I do other than, oh, well, and I collapsed to the ground. And that's, that's the moment where it was like, I let it go. Oh. Like, okay, I can't hold on anymore. I cannot hold on to, I can't hold on to life anymore. So I fall to the ground and I, you know, I see Callie and it's like, this is, this is the moment of death, but it isn't. And then it's like, I lose time. And it's like, uh, the next moment. Now, Alan Watts calls the ending of karma. He says the ending of karma is called Nirvana. And so I was confronting and ending all the negative, horrible things I had done in my life. And I somehow accepted that I was a monster. And then at that moment in time, I reawoken, or sorry, awoke. What's the right word I'm looking for here? <laughs> I awoke in a place that I call the possibility space. You know, it's termed nirvana or heaven or Buddha Whoa. consciousness or cosmic consciousness. Uh, you could name it a million different things. Satori, uh, moksha, like it has different names in different cultures, but it's all the same experience. It's the moment when you transcend the death of your ego and you you're in a you're in a place outside of time outside of you know normal space constraints it feels infinite and eternal and timeless and i'm in this place and it's sh it's shown to me like my entire life is like shown to me again like you know this is who you were now you're dead on the you're dead on the floor your heart has stopped and if you want to come back you have to be a different person you have to go back and live with integrity or that was in bomb on those tabs and you are literally dead right mm. now. So what is it going to be? Was that acid? Did you just have a crazy experience or are you dead and you're going to start this life over? Do you get to choose? So I, I said, I'll remember, I'll remember, I'll remember, I'll remember, I'll remember, I'll remember. And I found myself chanting like this on the, on the floor of my Koreatown apartment. And then it was like, like the same way that you feel when an 18 wheeler almost sideswipes your car, like my entire body mm. sweats and comes alive. And I'm like, Oh my God, I have hands. I didn't have hands inside this timeless dimension. You have no ability to grasp, to hold on to anything, to know that you were a self, like that was all gone. And then finally I was back and I was like, Oh my God, what a gift. What a gift that I've been given to come back and be here on this planet. And I cannot waste it. I cannot, I cannot do, I cannot live the way that I was living. So I decided to start changing. And yeah. uh, that was in 2013. And then, you know, a few years later, I was doing this, like trying to write this, write this book and help people understand like how much their narratives are destroying their own lives. And like the universe is perfect if you get out of the way. <laughs> now, whenever you were in this timeless place, um, yeah what was it just a feeling was it you were seeing things visually 
was there an actual being you were talking to or was it just a sensation of this is how it was? So, uh, I will describe it from like an atheistic perspective because that was where I was in my life. Um, well, just just say know. what you've seen. I mean, what 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 okay. happened? Just I just want another layer of detail on that specific piece. Um, I was looking at I was looking at Callie. I was looking at her, and um, but then you know, in this moment where it melts into a timeless dimension, things aren't as neat and organized as they are here. So it's like you know, mm. I'm looking at her, but it's, it's, she's more than just her. She's my mother. She's my first kiss. She's my sister. And then she would transition back to Callie again. Like it was this weird non-dual existence, you know, in a place, you know, people call this the unitive experience because you become one with everything. You become one with the universe. You become one with whatever God archetype you subscribe to. And if you're an atheist like me, like, or like I was, then, um, you know, you perceive this, space is the possibility space, what I called it. Um, it's just like, it's almost like your brain is defragging itself. It's almost like you're in the presence of a supercomputer that is, it's like your highest self or your subconscious is, is having a dialogue with you. And that's what it felt like. It was like, I was talking to my highest self, which is my subconscious, which is just having a one-on-one chat with me, which is like, look, this is, this is where you're going. This is, this is where, who you really were. And this is who you could be. What do you want to do? And I chose to come back. Um, do, do you think yeah. that, that that exchange or those thoughts or that experience at the end of the timeless place, do you think that would have been different if maybe you were a Muslim or a Buddhist or something like that? Or do you think your upbringing shaped that experience? Totally. So, um, you know, when people describe this experience, they always clothe it in, you know, if they have been brought up in a religious household, then they will clothe it in religious language and religious terms. Some people say they see elves or aliens, you know? So I used the way I wrote the book is um, I wanted to use religiously neutral terms, like, you know, our unconscious, um, our highest self, the possibility space. Um, I used the term Nirvana, but it is the same experience. Like, everybody reports the same sort of thing. It's interesting because, you know, we're, there's so many psychedelic studies happening at Johns Hopkins university and, um, just all over the world. Uh, we just legalized it here, um, in Denver. Um, so, but people, there's this, uh, questionnaire that they give people. It's called the mystical experience questionnaire, the MEQ 30. And if you read off the MEQ 30, it's like you can read between the lines. There's 30 questions. You read between the lines of what they're asking and they're asking what people see and mm-hmm. they see the same thing. They keep reporting, seeing the same thing. So they're like, have you experienced a moment of selflessness, timelessness, oceanic boundlessness? So your self versus other ability to, you know, say like my body ends here, that is offline. So you merge with whatever you're looking at, with whatever you're next to with whatever you're looking at becomes God, so to speak. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, if you are a religious person, whatever narratives you've been taught, they're dissolved because, you know, you have these religious certainties about, Oh, well, God must look like this and all that stuff. And that just melts away. And you're open to the possibility of what God really is. <laughs> yeah, And it, it's a complex subject, but, um, but I, I'll just layer it with one thing, which is like, 
there's basically two huge ideas when it comes to the religious world. It's like either the world is a production of God. So it's like something he produced, like an artifact. And now we live inside this production and he watches it outside his creation, like some sort of voyeur. So that would be a production of God. Or the universe is a manifestation of God, which means all things are divine. You're divine. I'm divine. Everybody's divine. This is a, you know, it's all manifestations of God or God consciousness or just the, the, the energy that is, that manifests all things, you know, the primordial energy that kicked off this whole thing for uh, 13.82 billion years ago, that energy, that's God. (laughs) That's, yo, that, that's a whole different topic there too. Cause that, that's real funky. So did your, hmm, two questions. Yeah. (laughs) First one, (laughs) I got a bunch. Uh, First one is, do you truly believe that in that timeless space, if mm. and you were given that ultimatum, listen, either you you OD'd or this is just a bad trip. Pick one. Mm. If you would have said, "Listen, I OD'd. I want to start over." Do you think you would be alive now? And the second question is: Did that experience change your views on is there a God? Is there an afterlife? Oh, hundred um, percent. So where a lot of people are going with this, okay, sorry, your first question. I'm going to ask that one. One more time on the first question. Yeah. So, so you were in this timeless place and you were given a choice. Hey, listen, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you died? think, yeah, would you have really, do you think you really would have died? I think, I think, I think so, man. Um, yeah. it, it, the, these transcendent experiences also tend to happen when there is an, uh, some sort of death component, when it is believable that you could have died. And so yeah. I've had many of these experiences. I've had over 40 of them where I've transcended the death of me, my ego and I've experienced this place called Nirvana. Now, it doesn't always happen on psychedelics. Um, it doesn't have to happen on psychedelics. It can You can just have a fun trip, but sometimes it does happen. And then sometimes I've just been going about my day and this happens like this. People slip into this this, um, experience, um, you know, people meditate for 10 plus years trying to get to Nirvana and I backdoored my way in with four and a half taps. I would not recommend it. It was not, I mean, it was beautiful and I mean, changed my life forever, obviously, but like, it was scary. It was so scary having your ego ripped away from you like that and to be shoved into experience you didn't understand. And then to get shoved back into a body, like to be this timeless, eternal creature that then just, just gets shoved back into a body. Like, Oh my God. Like it was, I'm so grateful that I got to come back, but um, it took a lot of processing to understand what this was. Like I didn't have a concept that you could have a transcendent experience. I didn't know that that was possible. (laughs) I didn't know that could happen, you know? And, um, so I did think, I mean, it, it, I, I think it was, it was as serious as I believe I would have died, man, honestly, because another experience I had, it was the same sort of thing. It's like, well, you did it again. You took too much of the substance you weren't hundred percent sure about. And now you have to restart your heart. And, you know, maybe that's just the way that it manifests, but, um, and here's, I want to layer another part on, but like, 
it gets a little way too weird and no let's do it man hey listen i'm i'm let's go there the world's flat the aliens are here let's go there you won't get pushed back (laughs) from me let's just explore these places i'm super open let's talk about it okay well a lot of people okay you can either take the view that there's only two things you can say about consciousness you can either say that it is emergent so it emerged. We evolved this consciousness some somewhere after we split with the chimps six million years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or you can say that consciousness is fundamental to reality. So consciousness was always here and you can still buy into the fact that evolution happened and we have gotten steadily more aware as a species um, over the course of the last three and a half billion years. But um, those are the only two main arguments you can have. And so the book treats both of those arguments, you know, like, what if it's this way? What if it's that way? And uh, ultimately ends up with an interpretation that is that we think is 100% correct. And it is. But, you know, I just want to put a little doubt in there for anybody. No, man. That's a good perspective. um, So could could you talk about how have your views changed on maybe an afterlife after this crazy experience? So, okay, so. You were you an have, atheist. I was atheist. Okay. Um, but I was raised, you know, Epis- I was raised Presbyterian, went to Episcopalian school, went to private school. And, uh, you know, it was about 18 that I was like, started looking at world religions. And I was like, okay, well, if they believe this and they believe this and they believe this, then what makes my culture so special that we got it figured out? So I was like, yeah. maybe no one has it figured out. And I loved science. So I was like, okay. So I was like a child of Richard Dawkins in a sense. It was like, all right, this is you know, science can answer most everything. And, um, you know, there's no, no need to posit a, uh, supernatural being. So why do that? So I was kind of an atheist until I was about 25. And then it was this experience that was like, you know, in India, for example, <clears throat> they bow to each other, right? They yeah. say namaste and bow to each other. Do you know why? Do you no. know why they do that? No, no. So namaste means I bow to the divine in you. So they bow to you and to other people, strangers, and they do this because they know that you are a manifestation of God, just as they are. And so they treat you with the same respect they treat anyone else. And so that is the ultimate game. I mean, sorry, that is the ultimate strategy for living. And if you look at, if you go into the, if you go into um, the United Nations building, there is a poster hanging on permanent display, which renders the golden rule. You know, the golden rule, I'm sure. Yes, of course. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Yeah, so right. that same essential ethic of reciprocity is rendered in all 12 of the major religions throughout the planet. That's interesting that we've all figured out that we should treat each other as if we wanted to be treated, like, like treat each other like they're all ourselves. Yeah. You know, like, they say it in different words, but it's, I have this poster sitting right over here. I mean, I love it. And so this poster actually has it in 13 different religions, but I mean, it just goes to show you, like, we're all trying to say the same thing religions are, but they're failing miserably because, you know, Joseph Campbell, a great philosopher and like one of the best mythologists of all time. um, He says, all religions are true. If you can forgive the temporal inflections that their culture imposes. Mm. So, you know, we all have had where it gets to is like this experience of transcendence of Nirvana of heaven of cosmic consciousness or universal consciousness or Brahman consciousness or whatever you want to call it. It's all 
we're all calling it something else, but it's the same experience. And so I would, you know, and what people are starting to figure out now is like most religions are started after somebody has had one of these impossible to describe experiences and tried to explain it to someone. And so they use language and they try to pin it down. But what this place is, is a four dimensional place. It's a place beyond time. And Mm -hmm. what are they describing God as? God is the infinite thing. You know what I mean? Like all, you know, if they're going, if you reduce all religions, they're all saying, you know, God is infinite. So why do we bicker? Why do cultures keep bickering about what to call God instead of just Mm -hmm. saying the infinite thing? Because that's what it is. You know, like (laughs) there is no, if, if infinity exists, which I mean, if we're going to take any kind of scientific perspective, the universe is infinite. Like we can't measure it because how would we measure it? We don't have an infinite tape measure, but like, (laughs) You know, like, but like every smart person I've ever talked to believes that it's infinite because it's been expanding ever since it first began, quote unquote, 13.82 billion years ago. And it's not only, it's not just expanding, it's speeding up in its rate of expansion. That's crazy. And so, and if it isn't infinite, then there is some place in the universe where you could go and you couldn't put your arm out. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like to think. All right. So then if it's not infinite, it's some sort of some kind of box or container. And there is a spot where you're just like, oh, that's it. That's the edge. So it doesn't make sense. It's that's such a great thought experiment, by the way. It's such a great analogy. Yeah, I heard it in a philosophy course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, like, all right. So then this gets you to. So if you look at the if you start looking, if anybody's li- listening to this, like if you start looking into the psychedelic studies that are happening, you start to understand that people keep tapping into this same infinite place, this eternal spot, this timeless dimension. And that's the words they use to describe it. And they've never talked to each other, probably. And they're using these same words. And then you're like, okay, well, that's kind of weird and interesting. But then you start looking through time. And this is where the book does even more justice is it starts, you know, layering this idea, which is, this isn't something that just started happening since we, you know, rediscovered psychedelics in the 60s. It's, it's something that's been happening throughout all of time. And if you look at what these philosophers from the 1400s are saying and the 1500s, and then, you know, um, Plato, like it, like you can keep tracing it back and they're all trying to describe the same infinite, eternal, timeless place. Yeah. You got to blur your eyes a little bit sometimes, but basically that's what they're saying. And so if infinity exists, then infinity is God. And so we need to stop labeling it as Allah or, you know, Jehovah or whatever it is, and just, just accept it as the infinite thing. Yeah. And that would cause less wars. Just, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think think that's like a, uh, a Joe Rogan quote. It's like, man, we just all need to sit around do a little bit of mushrooms and love each other. And, and there'll be no more wars. What would you say that? So all of these people, they have, they see the same thing. What would you say if someone was like, well, they did the same drug. So they've seen the same thing. Of course they would. Right. (laughs) Well, so you can, you can, so these flow states we were talking about, right? So flow states are miniature transcendent or mystical type experiences. They are just, you know, you're tapping into a moment of selflessness and timelessness and that oceanic boundlessness. So you're, you're tapping into moments of that. So if, if people, most people have experienced a flow state. So imagine a flow state, but times 10 or maybe more. And that's what a transcendent or mystical type experience is going to be like. So your sense of self is gone. Your ability to calculate time is gone. You are just whatever you're doing. And so, um, and so 
Oh, I lost where I was going with that. What was the prompt? I'm sorry. Yeah. So uh, you, you're saying that a lot of people, they take these psychedelics and they all kind of see the same thing. And yeah. what if like the pushback was, it's like, of course they see the same thing is because they're all taking the same drug essentially or substance. Right. Well, okay. So you can go <laughs> meditate and you can reach this spot mm. or you can do some, uh, like some people will achieve it on surfing or they'll achieve it in, you know, whatever creative field they're doing. Um, they'll tap into moments of this. And so it can happen spontaneously to you. Uh, it happens spontaneously to the Buddha, for example. Mm. And so the, you know, and I do enjoy Buddhist philosophy because Buddhism isn't a religion in the sense that like, there's no God that they believe in. They don't believe in a particular God. Even the Buddha himself isn't seen as a God. He's just seen as a man who woke up. And what did he wake up from? The dream that we're all separate. Wow. That's what he woke up to. And so that's the realization. And that's what people, you know, keep waking up to is this same idea that like, somehow we're all one. Somehow I'm one with the universe. Somehow the energy that is in this table is also the same energy that is me. And then if you look into the scientific literature, it's like, okay, this is where it gets really crazy. Yeah. All right. So all religions on the planet, if I'm going to reduce to what, what they say, they say this. There is some sort of unseen order, okay? And this is actually coming from uh, one of a uh, scientist and philosopher named William James. There is some sort of unseen order. That's what he. That's what he came to the conclusion. And I was like, "That's brilliant! It's a brilliant idea because that's that is what they're saying. Yeah. You know, even though there's so much chaos in the world, there's so much pain and suffering, there is some sort of unseen order, and we should have faith that it's that that it's unfolding in a way." And that's the whole broad religious perspective. Now you take an atheist or a scientific perspective and it's like, well, there was order. You know, they believe in the Big Bang, right? And, of course. And I do too. Like, yeah. So 13.82 billion years ago, everything, it's supersymmetry. Everything was super symmetrical. The universe was a dense, hot ball of energy. And that's all it was. Space and time didn't exist. And then it started expanding and it, it you know, exploded obviously and uh banged into existence and then it's been steadily growing and becoming more complex ever since but they believe that it was extremely ordered 13.82 billion years ago but now it's just all fucking chaos and now it's just blind energy so you can take the perspective that it's just blind energy or you can take the perspective that this energy is the only energy that exists because if there is infinity, then infinity is the only substance. There yeah. is no such thing outside of infinity because infinity is what there is. So we are infinity. We are manifestations of that same energy that happened 13.82 billion years ago, except now I have a name and an address and a driver's license. And I think I'm separate from that, but I am not separate from that. I am just over here more complex. Mm. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time to like warm up to that idea, but that's that's where it goes. No, I'm warm. I I tell you what, I'm not warm on All is right. is the Big Bang, and uh, <laughs> because bro, we don't know if it's gonna rain tomorrow, and these people are trying to tell us what happened 13 billion years ago. Now, listen. In all honesty, I don't fucking know. It's probably right. These scientists are ten times smarter than me. But it just it it what baffles me is not the Big Bang theory or whatever. 
Um, what baffles me is that people believe it so much. It's like, bro, this was 13 billion years. How are we supposed to know what the hell happened 13 billion years ago? It's like, we don't even know history of what happened like 2000 years ago. Like we rewrite that shit all the time, but we're supposed to know that. Now, once again, I'll preface this. I'm a fucking idiot. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I don't know, but I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened. It, it probably was a big bang, but it just, uh, it's like, why do we, why is this such an established, like where, what, what is the counterpoint to the big bang? What's the other theory? I don't even know. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I guess I don't even know if there's another supremely good theory, but I, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about like where the big bang came from. It's 1929. There's a, an astronomer named Edwin Hubble and he's using the Hubble telescope um, he's looking up at the night sky and he's noticing that all these galaxies, all these points of light that he thinks are stars that we all think are stars are actually galaxies. And so he's like, okay, wow, we're not the only galaxy. There's tons of galaxies. Yeah. And then he notices that they're red shifted. So they're, um, moving away from each other, you know, they're yeah. all moving away from each other. And so, because they're all moving away from each other, you know, it's kind of like a, a movie in the sense you can rewind it. Okay. Well, if they were all moving away from each other, let's see their trajectory, you know, calculate where they're going and then let's reverse that and rewind it like a movie. And then if you do that math, it all comes back to that single point, 13.82 mm. billion years ago. And that's what they call the singularity. That's uh, where the big bang started. Um, I've never heard then, anyone break it down like that. That that was a great explanation, by the way. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, man. So, I mean, that's, and so that's, that's where it starts. And I mean, that's just like the general, like, you know, couple sentence version but um yeah there's there's more that could be said i'm sure well it makes sense it's like hey this stuff right we know for a fact in space there is no friction there's no momentum if you throw a baseball in space it will never stop unless it hits something and so therefore these planets are going through space nothing's going to stop them and you know like you just said rewind it that's pretty fascinating going back to the the psychedelics right okay um the how they all kind of see the same thing now i I've heard, I, I don't, listen, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that there's people who would be on like different coasts of America and they would both take a psychedelic and they would enter this portal and they would come back. And not only would they call each other and say that they seen the exact same thing, but they talked to the same being and they can recount what they said. So like the guy on the East Coast can say, oh yeah, just for example. Yeah, tell me about what he was saying about uh, what he ate yesterday. And and the guy on the West Coast would be like, yeah, he ate a steak dinner, right? He was like, yeah, he ate a steak dinner. Like, th- that's some freaky shit, right? How these people on different coasts can take the same stuff, substance and enter this different dimension, this different level of consciousness, and they see the same thing. That's, mm-hmm. some, that's some really, really freaky shit that I don't think a lot of people want to even think about because I think it'll shatter their view of the world. Well, I mean, it is the case that, you know, we have these brains and this ego self that is driving this meat skeleton, right? And so it can't be aware of everything at once. Like that 11 million bits we were talking about earlier, yeah. like you would you you'd lose your mind if you were absorbed, if you were dipped in that amount of information like you just can't process it so consciousness at the level of level of experience is is finite you know we have 
uh, a limited attention span and a limited capacity for information processing because we are embodied creatures. Now, if you offline the body and you can offline it through psychedelics or a sensory deprivation tank or, um, you know, like a flow state offlines the body in a way, um, and then psychedelics will offline the body. Um, and so if you offline the body for a second, like then you tap into these other realms of consciousness that are there, but we're screening out of existence. So, I mean, people report some very weird things and I would be, you know, skeptical, of course, I'm a very skeptical person, but the book is written from a very scientific, um, I mean, every single fact is cited or triple cited. Um, and, uh, you know, it does teach you like what the brain is, how is it doing this? So it starts from a very neuroscience heavy perspective and then starts to get into some weirder ideas. But, you know, all along the way, I'm priming the reader's brain to understand, like, you know, we need to take the transcendent or mystical type experience seriously. And, um, you know, uh, that's what I'd say about that. Yeah. And, and we should say, so you, you had the near death experience, you changed your entire life. And mm -hmm. you went from being comedian and actor to an author. <laughs> By the way, we should mention the book is Consciousness in a Nutshell, A Psychonautical Odyssey. Really cool book. The only thing I was upset about was that there was not a nutshell on the damn cover. <laughs> 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 but uh, um, so do you think that consciousness is like I'm trying to think? like a radio. So if you look at a radio, just the hardware, I have a plastic shell. I have some transistors inside. I have some speakers. If you just look at this and analyze this with a certain level of knowledge, you would say, how is this producing sound? This doesn't make sense at all. And the piece mm -hmm. that you're missing is the radio wave. The radio, there's nothing special about the radio wave, about the radio. What's special is that it tunes into a radio frequency and therefore can deliver beautiful music. Do you think consciousness is like that, that, hey, we have this brain and it's like people kind of can't figure it out. Like, how does this consciousness thing works? Do you think maybe it just tunes in to different frequencies and that maybe psychedelics can let you tune into new frequencies or sensory deprivation tanks? Do you think that's how it works or is it all just like hardwired brain biology? Um, that's a good analogy. Um, I, yeah, I, I came across an analogy like that in one of David Eagleman's books. Um, he's a neuroscientist. Um, and yeah, he leaves the author, I'm sorry, leaves the reader with that same sort of idea. Like what if, you know, like what if it was something like that and, um, like a radio. And so I would say that consciousness is fundamental. It is what there is and where you find energy, you find consciousness. So, um, if, if we're taking this big bang idea seriously. So that one, that, that singularity, that was just raw energy yeah. and then it fractured and started becoming matter eventually. Um, but so, so that is the energy and that energy, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It can only, uh, transform as states, I think. So, um, we are that energy basically. Mm. Um, so, I feel your radio argument and it's, it's good in the sense that like it gets you to on board with the idea that um, consciousness might not be localized to the brain. You know, like a lot of people would just believe that it's something that happens from the neck up and between your ears, that's consciousness. Yeah. And um, so 
where we take it in the book is like, you know, no, you have to account for this environment that you live in. We're not just brains in a vat. We're not just humans in a vacuum, you know, like we're in an environment. So there is a brain interaction with this environment. So you have to account for the environment in your um, theory of consciousness. So I feel like I'm evading the question in a way, but I'm trying to answer it. <laughs> I, I, a, I think it's a complicated one. I think it's hard because what, what I'm alluding to is woo woo land essentially is what I'm alluding to is, Hey, there's other dimensions and stuff like that stuff. That's very unscientific. And so it's hard to explain it. It, it really is to even kind of go down that road that maybe our brain is just an antenna tapping into different consciousness. It's very woo woo, but I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. So, okay. I know how to answer this, I think. So uh, the philosopher and mythologist I was quoting earlier, Joseph Campbell, he talks about how like you can either identify, you know, is consciousness the bulb? Am I the like, is consciousness the bulb and there's a light in the bulb? Like, mm. am I just this conscious bulb thing? Or am I the light that that is in the bulb? Like, as in, you can either believe that this body is something that is going to die and then now your consciousness is gone, or you can realize that you are the wavelength, as you would put it. You know, you are the radio wavelength that is inside this uh, radio. So that is what is eternal. The consciousness is eternal because it is what there is. It is, yeah, it is what there yeah. is. And um, so like this body, this meat suit that's talking to you right now is going to die, but the consciousness that is manifesting it like a puppet um, is eternal. And so that's what people tend to report and experience when they um, have one of these experiences because, um, and it, that's what sets them right. You know, like why is it that these psychedelics are being studied for um, so many different <laughs> disorders of consciousness? And, and the answer is, is like, you know, it's, it's somehow they see something that sets them right. And it, it knocks them out of depression. It knocks them out of anxiety. It knocks yeah. them out of, um, uh, addiction, you know? And so they tap into something that reminds them there is order. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think, so historically, whenever people cannot explain things, they tend to, make it woo woo. They make it, um, for example, back in the day, oh no, it hasn't rained for a hundred days. We have to pray to the rain gods. We have to do this. Oh my gosh, it's the rain gods. Or, oh no, we have a plague. We have to pray to the cricket gods, right? To help that. We have to do the rain dance. It's like, this is why they're punishing us for our sins. We have to sacrifice all the virgins in the town, right? Now we know that, hey, you know, we have like climate. We kind of know how it works. We know that, hey, plagues come because maybe we leave stuff um, unchecked or whatever. Do you think that maybe in a thousand years they're going to look back on us? But like, oh, those those schmucks, they thought about consciousness this way. They thought that it was maybe something you can tap into or whatever. But we know all about that now. Like they that was is this the last woo woo land that exists? Um to our knowledge. I hope so. <laughs> oh, I love your answer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love whenever people, because here's the thing too, rant. Here we go. Uh -huh. Okay. Go back. A thousand years ago, we had great scientists. A hundred years ago, we had great scientists. Everybody thought that, oh, we know 99% of science. There's 1% we don't know. 
But they thought that a thousand years ago. They thought that 500 years ago. They thought that 200 years ago. They all thought it. They was like, oh yeah, we know science. We know how this works. We know shapes, geometry, algebra, all this good stuff. We could, we could explain physics e equals MC square. I bet Einstein was like, listen, we got all this figured out. But they always thought that. So what makes us think that we have 99% figured out? And we're not just, we're just not like the schmucks from a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago. And so I really appreciate whenever smart people like you who wrote an entire book on the topic is like, hey man, maybe we don't know everything. And you know what? I kind of hope we don't. I think that's beautiful about you. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I mean, it's, it's arrogant to think it, to, to, to be that, to be, to, to be that way and think like, oh, we've got it all figured out or, you know, in the next hundred years, we'll have it all figured out. Um, because like, you know, as we know more, we know, we know less. Yeah. You know, as we realize. Yeah, exactly. So that's great. My, my last question, my last topic that, uh, I I read in the book that actually really fascinated me instinctual behavior versus learned behavior. Um, so I just kind of want to go over maybe an example, um, of instinctual versus learned behavior. And you could elaborate Are urges like, let's say a, a sex drive. Is that instinctual or learned? So yeah, sex is going to be definitely an instinctual drive. Um, there is some controversy about like, you know, people, there's this, this is so wrong, but people are on this belief that somehow we as humans have less instincts than our animal counterparts. They believe in evolution, but they don't seem to understand evolution properly in the sense that like, okay, like what I want to ask them is like, here's a thought experiment. At what point in our long evolutionary past did we shed all of our instincts and become these, you know, free will carrying, um, entities like, like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, you know, if all these animals are basically clockwork robots, as they would describe them sometimes, you know, acting solely on instinct with no conscious awareness at all. And we're this special conscious creature on the planet, which I don't believe any of this, by the way, you know, like at what point did we leap from that to this? Yeah. You know, and that's a question they cannot answer. It's a question nobody can answer because, you know, I mean, it's like, at what point does, it's hard to answer at what point did this species become that species because that the transition is always going to be gradual, you know, and you could liken it to at what point did it become night for you? Mm. It was day earlier and now it's night, but at what point did it become night? <laughs> you can't, you can't answer that. Yeah. Like at what point did that ice cube become water? You know, like it melted, Yeah. but there's no one spot. So it, it these, these transitions happen gradually. So And then the idea that came from William James, I believe, is that, you know, we don't have less instincts, we have more instincts. And so what I believe is that, you know, consciousness is ultimately about managing information, right? Mm -hmm. So we have data streams coming in, and we have to manage this. And so consciousness at the level of experience, uh, at the level of experience is ultimately about managing information and managing data streams. And uh, we don't get everything, right? We don't get 11 million bits, we get the 200 bit size stories sent up to us. And it's, uh, channeled and filtered. And it's just the bite-sized story. It's like the headlines, as David Eagleman would say, of what's going on. It's the need to know information. So it's not everything. It's just what you need to know to survive. And so ultimately, for me, consciousness is a it's, it's an instinct adjudication system. Wow. So you have 
conflicting instinctual drives, do this, go this, I'm hungry, I need this, you know, and, but you need to have some sort of executive that's managing all these things. Otherwise, um, you know, it's, it's like robots, they need some sort of, if you're going to make some sort of really powerful robot, they need to have some sort of executive function that can manage all these codes that are, you know, sure they have, um, what would you call it? Like, I don't know, before a code executes, like for code A to execute or code B to execute. Like a prerequisite. They need to know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So like you just need to be able to manage between, is it this one or that one Mm. I need to go? Like, is it this instinct or that instinct? And so we're always being, you know, it's rare that we're ever in 100% agreement about one thing. Like we're always being pulled between two different extremes. Like, I kind of want to do this podcast, but I'm really tired. You know, like yeah, yeah. it's like, we're never in a hundred percent agreement about something. So we always have conflicting wants and wishes. And so consciousness that we experience this thing up here is ultimately about managing that. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. And deciding between things. That That is beautiful. The book's consciousness in a nutshell. It does not have a nutshell on the cover, but the cover is actually really cool. I thought it's much more beautiful than a nutshell. There it is, a psychonautical uh, odyssey. That's a hard word. Um, Yep. (laughs) You are fantastic. Where can people find you, Jay? So uh, we have our website. It's the easiest place to find us and uh, connect, but it's uh, www.consciousnessinanutshell.com. All one word, obviously. And uh, on Instagram is at consciousness in a nutshell. And um, all our socials are at consciousness in a nutshell, but YouTube as well, at consciousness in a nutshell. Um, yeah, cool. And we're putting out, there's a video I'd really love people to watch. It's called the universal reason why people get depressed. Mm. Um, and so it's a theory of depression that really shows you, uh, what depression is, where it comes from and destroys the chemical imbalance narrative that we've been, uh, force fed since the fifties. I actually watched that video. Maybe we'll talk. Oh, cool. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I was, I was scoping, nice. scoping out your YouTube. I thought it was brilliant. It was honestly a great video. I'm, I'm not even joking. Thanks. Uh, maybe next time we can do this again. We'll yeah. talk about that. We'll talk about a bunch of other cool stuff too. Um, by the way, everything that you just said, how to get in touch with you, the book, everything will be in the show notes. Jay, you're fantastic. I cannot thank you so much for doing this with a newborn in the house. I could only imagine um the lack of sleep you have thank you so much for being a trooper you're awesome thanks for coming on the podcast thank you so much chris all right